As you know, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I read to you from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We want to come to the place where we further rest in God's love and destroy fleshly lusts so that the Lord will use our conduct to save the lost. Now, does our conduct save the lost? No, that's not what we're saying, that the Lord would use it, that the Lord would save the lost by using our conduct. Your conduct matters. That's why we've titled the message, The Eternal Influence of Your Attitude and Conduct. Last week was attitude, this week is conduct. Verse 11 is attitude, verse 12 is conduct. Point number one from last week, as you remember, is remember God's love. Just a quick review here. Remember God's love. Peter starts with this term, beloved. This is a term specifically and exclusively used for God's elect. He never uses this term. The scripture never uses this term to apply to someone who is not of the Lord, who is a child of God, an adopted son or daughter. And we said that this term, beloved, really focused on love from three sources. As Peter speaks to the reader, there were three sources of this love. Of course, Peter, you know, beloved, and he calls them beloved. He's thinking and speaking of his own love for them, but also the body of Christ. We could hearken back to Peter's words, including their love for one another. And then third, of course, God's love for them. And this was really the heart of our focus last time, remembering God's Love. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So, point two was destroy ungodly, soul destroying thinking. Destroy the destroyer. What is the destroyer? Many times it's you. You, yes, are your own worst enemy sometimes because you listen to yourself more than you talk to yourself. Same with me. We find ourselves heading down a default path of bad thinking, bitterness towards someone. You know, as Peter has told us, to put those things away, put away malice, put away hypocrisy, put away deceit. And you remember from that text, you remember that those things were certain roadblocks against spiritual growth via the Word of God. How will you increasingly come to the place where you drink from the Word of God as if it is pure milk in a baby's mouth? How will you come to that place? Well, this is, that's not the question that Peter answers so much as he answers this question. How will you not come to that place? It's by hanging on to some embitterment. It's hanging on to a bad attitude. And you can develop that toward anyone, and you can cultivate it, and you can nurture it, and you can protect it, because where does it take place? In some place that nobody else really sees. It's eventually going to come out. It's going to spill out of your mouth and your conduct. Peter says, put all that away. And the way he says it here is to stop, to abstain, to bring a stop to it. Be full of it. Be so satiated with uh, fleshly lusts 
that you will stop, recognize that this has brought your life to a bad, bad place. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Destroy ungodly, destructive thinking. Destroy it. Kill it. You've got to attack it. You've got to go after it. You've got to, act, got to go after it with a righteous vengeance, a holy hatred. And to do so, why? Because you are citizens in a foreign land. You're citizens of heaven, and you're aliens in this land. And so it's incumbent upon you, it's your responsibility to deal with it and to do so with a righteous perspective. Well, point number three, and this picks us up this morning in verse 12. Point number three, exercise godly conduct. You know, the way your third grade teacher said it was behave. It's not a bad term. Have good behavior. Now, the behavior modificationist, the modern psychologist, would tell you to modify your behavior. I remember teaching in a, with a group of teachers many years ago. As I was explaining this, this gal, she may have said it louder than she intended to because I heard it. She said, behavior mod. <laughs> and I said, well, there is some overlap. You know that, right? There is some overlap between Christianity and psychology. But that doesn't mean they come from the same basis. The Bible says, deal with the heart and the behavior will come. The psychologist says, deal with your behavior. Fix your behavior and you'll have a better life. 21 days for a certain habit and pretty soon you're there, right? That's how all that is supposed to work. The Bible says, deal with your heart. But here, Peter is dealing specifically with conduct. Here's what he says, keep your behavior excellent. What you do matters. The term keep here really means to possess or to hold on to. Hold on to it. Hold on to godly conduct. Hold on to excellent behavior. Be pleasing to the Lord and honor Him in what you do. To do this, as you know, you must understand the relationship between heart attitude and conduct. You must understand the relationship between destroying ungodly, soul-destroying thinking and exercising godly conduct. James says in James 3 verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? See, that's a heart condition. Those are heart attitudes. Who's wise and understanding? Listen to this. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. What do you think of when you think of wisdom? Who do you think of when you think of wisdom? A wise man is gentle. He's humble. Really, humility is the gateway unto wisdom. But a lot of people might define a wise person as someone who knows a lot and loves to tell everybody what he knows. That's not necessarily wisdom. But the wise man is gentle, and he shows his wisdom in his gentleness, in his conduct. Let me read it again. James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of his wisdom. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. In other words, we hope that you know us in the depth of your heart for who we really are. Paul wasn't hiding anything. He was saying, I want you to know my 
character. This is what a true leader does. He makes himself available. He makes himself apparent. He makes himself accessible to people, not just for the sake of what we would call accountability, but for the sake of God's glory. Paul says, we hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. This is what Jesus was exposing about the Pharisees. They took pride in appearance. There's nothing wrong with, you know, showering and getting cleaned up and doing all the things you do to get here so that, you know, people don't go, ooh, right? (laughs) Nothing wrong with all that. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about an appearance of godliness. As he says to Timothy, there are those who have an appearance of godliness without power. They're putting on a show. They're doing what they have to do to lead people to think certain things about them. They take pride in appearance and not... In heart. That's the tragic reality of the pseudo Christian. He stands his ground. He defends himself. I'm a godly person. Jesus didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. A genuinely humble person would never do that. A genuinely humble person would say, I'm flawed. I need your assessment of my life. I have the privilege to teach the men in the Grace Advance program a couple times a year. And one of the first things I tell them, guys, when you go into ministry, if you plant a church or you become the pastor of what they call a revitalization church, a church that's been hurting, and they need a shepherd, they need someone to take care of them, be aware of the fact that people will lie about you. But be more aware of the fact that the lies that they conjure up couldn't possibly be as bad as the truth. I can, tell them, I can tell them that about them because I know that to be true about me. This is the condition of the human soul. We're a mess. But by God's grace, He has imparted righteousness to us. He's caused us to be born again, something only He could do. And even with that, we will always be battling the flesh. And it's a battle that can be won, but not with perfection in this lifetime. That's why we need Christ to come and take us home. Desire correction and growth. You know, don't think that you somehow can handle this by yourself, that you can exercise godly conduct all on your own without others who love you and maybe even some who don't love you to be willing to tell you a thing or two every now and then. Be humble. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, the guy or the gal who's only ever willing to hear what he or she has to say. Although readily willing to hear good things, positive things that others have to say. But the minute you turn a corner and start dealing by speaking the truth in love and assessing my life, no, I don't want any part of that. You don't have that right in my life. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
Nothing makes a person more ineffective in the body of Christ than a disinterest in the counsel of other believers. You want to be rendered completely ineffective? Get angry every time someone tells you something about you. Run from it. Reject it. In Proverbs 1, I love this proverb. Of course, I love all the Bible, don't you? But every now and then the Lord seems to use a passage to cultivate a growth spurt, greater dependence upon Him. I recall a time in my life when I really thought I had gone beyond God's grace. I was convinced. And I kept reading Proverbs 1, and I, was, you know, I would weep, and I would be of such great despair that I, I felt as, as though I must have outrun God's kindness. And I couldn't get to the end of the proverb. Starting with verse 20, Proverbs 1 says, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At this time in my life, I, I remember thinking, I must be on the wrong street. <laughs> I must be on the wrong city, because I, I can't even hear an echo of any of this. My heart was so beat up, self-inflicted, and, and so hard, so deceived. Verse 21, At the head of the noisy streets she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Can you see how I might have been discouraged reading this passage and you know, thinking, I just don't have that love and feeling. Something's not adding up here. Verse 28, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. Oh, brother. That's me. I'm reading this thinking, Lord, I'm calling on you and you're not answering. I've, I've extended my, my warranty. I'm beyond God's help. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. That was me. That was me. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. I would get that far and I couldn't go on. I couldn't finish the chapter. Completely devastated. And then one time, I got to verse 33. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. What does that mean in our culture, in our day? The canon of Scripture is closed. God has given us His revelation. He uses people. He uses people to bring the Word of God to bear upon the child of God by the power of the Spirit of God. I was not interested in that. And the moment that changed was the moment the Lord began to soften and break my heart and make me useful 
I love how in 2 Peter 1, Peter speaks of those who are not useful. They're not fruitful. In the body, you want to become useful, fruitful, productive. Sin prevents that. A lack of willingness to be corrected prevents productivity in the body. You could be productive in a in an entertainment mecca that calls itself a church. You know, you could get involved in something like that and be the person who brings the donuts every six weeks or whatever. You, you know, you can be part of that whole thing. But can you be productive in a church that's really devoted to holiness? Well, no, because if you're not devoted to holiness, you're not part of what's going on. But your conduct, your conduct is rooted in your heart attitude. The root results in the fruit. Who you are results in what you do. Exercise godly conduct, realizing that your conduct is rooted in your heart attitude. Point number four. Point number four. Consider the lost. So we've asked you, point number one, to remember God's love, beloved. Point number two, we've asked you to destroy ungodly, soul-destroying thinking, abstaining from fleshly lusts. Number three, we've asked you to exercise godly conduct. Point number four, consider the lost. Consider the lost. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. This is the term ethnos. It literally means people or nations. It's simply a reference to the unsaved nations. It could also be translated as pagans. The commentator K.H. Job's says the word ethnosin can be translated Gentiles, emphasizing the ethnic identity of all who are not of God's nation or nations, acknowledging the geopolitical entities of the Gentiles. Both Peter and Paul, following Jewish thought, used the designation ethne to refer to those outside the community of Christian faith. Peter sees Christians as God's nation among the nations and is concerned with how the Gentiles perceive Christian behavior and are recognizing that you are an alien, a foreigner in a foreign land and being concerned about your conduct but also being willing to think of the lost in your concern about your conduct. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. They're watching. They're impressionable. You claim the name of the Lord they want to know what that looks like. You know that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. Do you know that that has nothing to do with a curse word? That's not at all what's going on there. It is that you would take the name of the Lord and you would live your life with meaningless connection to that. You don't display the name of the Lord. You claim to be a believer. Now, if you were to use that curse word, would that look like that? Of course it would, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is that you claim to be a child of God, and yet your conduct reveals otherwise. That's what it is to take the name of the Lord in vain. See the same word here uh, translated as Gentile. In this passage, translated as pagan. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2 you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. How were you led out of that? You saw the lives of godly people in your pagan condition, in your Gentile condition. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, understand here that Peter and Paul use the term Gentile to speak of those who don't know the Lord. It had nothing to do with ethnicity the way they're using it here in either of these texts. Is it a man's problem with regard to sexual immorality that he is of a certain ethnicity or not of Jewish ethnicity? No. No. It's not what Paul or Peter is talking about. It's the fact that they don't know God. That's how Paul says it. For the New Testament Christian, it simply means unbelievers. Hebert says, For Peter... The term readily indicated the distinction between believers in Christ and the pagans whose evil practices they once shared. Formerly a Gentile, formerly a pagan, formerly an unbeliever. Consider your conduct in light of those who are still pagans, unbelievers. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 1, should be helpful. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. This is closely connected to what Peter's saying in our text this morning. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." In their abominable idolatries, they're going to accuse you of something similar, but it is your conduct that separates you from them. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You remember how I said last week that you have a relationship with Jesus. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus. He is either your Savior and Lord, or he is your judge and executioner. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. See, your conduct matters. It matters greatly because you need to be considering the lost. If you're considerate of the lost, if you're thinking about the fact that your conduct has an influence on them, that they one day might be, according to the will of God, living in the Spirit rather than being judged, then you have an evangelistic heart. But if you say things about unbelievers, well, that's their problem. They just rejected Jesus. I chose Jesus, and they didn't. That's the problem. They need Jesus. completely rejects everything Peter has said about us having been chosen before the foundation of the world by God. You had something to do with that, really? Our text goes on to say, so that, don't you love the so that's? Here, here's why. So that in the thing in which they slander you, and they will slander you, of course they will, either a guilty conscience or just a natural wicked state, slander everybody. 
but they will slander you as what? As evildoers. But when they slander us as evildoers, the issue is that we are living faithful lives and they're saying things about us that are not true. In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, they're observing, they're watching. And the Christian, who will only have anything to do with people who are Christian, and he thinks of his evangelism as just trying to reach people that he's got no connection to, no involvement with, you know, a five-minute interaction at a gas station or whatever. He's not really pouring himself into the next-door neighbor, the person down the street, the person at work. He's not really making an effort to make his life observably non-wicked. He's completely off the hook. It's a safe way to go. There's no uncomfortability. He just spends time with people that he considers to be worthy of his time. And his evangelism, oh, that's, that's, you know, we go out on Thursday nights and we do evangelism on Thursday nights. It's not necessarily evangelism. Evangelism is living your life with godly conduct because of a godly heart. You've rooted out the fleshly lusts. And when they grow back, you, you root them out again. It's a lifetime process those who claim no interest in christ will slander you but the false believer the one who attends church regularly will also slander you there will be tares among the wheat they will eventually prove themselves to be tares among the wheat but but they will be there so you want to be on guard for that slander be ready as he says in chapter three be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you to everyone who Asks, but with gentleness and reverence. You know, we don't beat the unbeliever over the head saying, you need Jesus. You need, to, you need to ask him in your heart just like I did. That's your problem. No, we live our lives with gentleness and reverence for the unbeliever, loving him, considerate of him. In 1 Peter 2, verse 20, Peter says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You want favor with God, don't you? This is how to find favor with God. Recognize that to be treated harshly for your sin doesn't mean anything. But when you endure with patience, being treated poorly when your conduct has been honoring to the Lord, that finds favor with God. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. I've heard men teach from this passage indicate that this is only for women married to unbelievers. There's nothing in the text that indicates that. In fact, the example is Abraham, who I'm pretty sure is a believer. So women, whether you're married to a believer or unbeliever, recognize there are going to be times where your husband is disobedient to the word. And your role is to win him over without a paragraph. No without a word. And you say, well, you don't know my husband. And I say, you don't really know me either, right? 
I can be that person. I can be that husband who is disobedient to the word. And the clear command is to win him over without a word. Husbands, verse 7, in the same way, in other words, all the things that he's just said to wives, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, as with a weaker vessel. Remember, your role is to be the stronger. Expect her to be the man. Adam did that. That didn't go so well. Since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The first thing, guys, you ought to be thinking, you think, I don't know, I've been praying, but nothing's happening. How do you treat your wife? What does that look like? You say, well, if I'm married to a believer, how, how, is this, how does this really pertain to what we're talking about today, that our behavior would be excellent among the Gentiles? Your husband or wife are not the only people that you're going to spend time with. So as you interact with each other, again, whether you're married to a believer or an unbeliever, ultimately your conduct is to be trained, it's to be cultivated in the marriage experience. It's the perfect and maybe the most safe environment in which to be trained in living your life before Gentiles in such a way that would actually be helpful, that would actually be evangelistic. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Wives, win your husbands over without a word. Why? Because there's a lost and dying world next to your house, in your neighborhood, at the workplace. Prepare in the home by treating one another with godly conduct that you would be ready to exhibit that godly conduct. That other people would look on and see your marriage and say that's a marriage that is, is different. Psalm 40, uh, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. You see that? In the pit of destruction when you're singing a song unto the lord the world will look on and some will be saved some will fear god and they will trust him in second corinthians 2 verse 14 paul says but thanks be to god who always leads us in triumph in christ now listen to this listen to how he defines triumph in christ i'll just kind of give you a little intro he does not define triumph in christ as winning people to christ not how he defines it. You would think evangelistic success is when we come back after a night of telling people about Christ and we can report that nine people got saved. That's not primarily evangelistic success. We would be thrilled with that. We should be. We should rejoice. But that's not primarily evangelistic success. Here it is. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. When you smell like Christ, that is evangelistic success. That's the triumph. When your life is, in fact, a reflection of the character of God, such that, using this metaphor, you smell like him. Paul carries this metaphor further in verse 15 by saying, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The ultimate goal is not the salvation of the lost. It's not the ultimate goal. It is our desire, and we long for that. We plead with the Lord for that. But the ultimate goal is to fragrantly express the character of God such that the elect would be saved and the non-elect would reject our message. That is the impact of a godly life. Paul goes on in verse 16 to say, To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? Paul goes on to say, We're not peddlers of the Word of God. We are truly, genuinely devoted to the Word of God. The person who's adequate for these things is the person who knows the Word of God. You know, you start utilizing oversimplified catchphrases. That's not the Word of God. And people might make a decision, and they might be interested in embracing that, but it's not the Word of God. It's not what the Lord uses. And so what ends up happening is you have all these false conversions. But if your life is a godly life, if your life is truly devoted to being considerate of the lost, the Lord will use you in your devotion to His Word and to understanding what a changed life really looks like. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Who is he talking about glorifying your Father who is in heaven? Those upon whom you have an influence because you are a shining light in a dark world. That's what you want. By the way, who did Jesus have compassion on? It was the nice people, right? The ones who played no role in the crucifixion, Right? Wasn't it the people who treated him well? Jesus had compassion on this very generic group of people called the multitudes. He looked on them and he had compassion. I, I think it, it can be a tendency in our culture uh, within the church to simply have compassion upon people who have compassion on us. But our privilege and our responsibility is to have compassion upon people who have no love for us at all. Think of the person who has treated you most poorly as your greatest opportunity to exhibit the love of Christ. Point number five, remember God's glory. Remember God's glory. This is what this is about, ultimately. That you and I would live such lives that those who are without Christ, those who are themselves evildoers, but slanderously and dishonestly accuse us of being evildoers, that they may observe our good deeds and in observing them, that they themselves would glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what is this day of visitation? In the Old Testament, the day of visitation was either God's arrival to bring blessing or punishment. In some cases, it is the moment at which God arrives to save his people from his wrath poured out on the wicked. God will visit, and that visitation will result in different consequences for different people. But it is his moment of intervention. Peter leans heavily on the prophet Isaiah. And throughout Isaiah, you see the day of visitation being this day of wrath, but also a day of preservation for those who trust in the Lord. 1 Peter 1 verse 5 says about those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The Lord will visit. The Lord will arrive in the last time. The day of visitation is the day of devastation for some and for others' delight. 
For the sinner saved by grace, it will be divine joy. And for the sinner stuck in his pride, it will be divine judgment. For the one sprinkled with the blood of the lamb, it will be great joy to worship the lamb forever. But for the one who tramples the blood of the lamb, he will suffer the eternal punishment of the lamb who is also a conquering lion. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we have full confidence that in the day of visitation it will be a good thing. He will take us to be with him forever. Peter calls us, as I mentioned to you earlier, to prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. That's godly conduct. Don't you want a lost and dying world? Don't you want those who observe you to know that you are a person of prayer? And this isn't so much about praying in public as it is about praying in private. Your life will be better known by your private prayer than it will by your public prayer if your private prayer is substantial. There's a man in the scripture that you know relatively well who glorified God. He remembered God's glory. He thought about God's glory. His life was devoted to God's glory, but he was not always devoted to God's glory. His name was Saul. Saul was a murderer. And in Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 54, we see the unfolding of the wickedness in his life. Acts chapter 7 records the murder of Stephen. Stephen had shared the gospel, and the report is that the men who heard him were cut to the quick. They hated what they heard. They despised hearing the preaching of God's word. They were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth. What is that? They were gritting their teeth. They couldn't wait not only to get out of there, but to do things evil to Stephen. He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. See, when you're slandered, people say evil things about you, do you immediately take offense? I think the far better thing is to say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't offend me. You know, I'm not going to take that personally. Well, you don't like me, you don't like what I do. It's okay, it's not about me. Stephen would say, it's not about me. I see the Lord. I'm going to be the Lord. And, and by the way, Lord, use my conduct right now. I've got one last shot. One last opportunity that people would observe my conduct. As a result, they would glorify God in the day of visitation. When the Lord returns, that they would be ready, that they would have been saying for some period of time with great passion, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, turn your thoughts from 
from embitteredness toward whoever, toward saying, Lord, come quickly. May it be that my conduct toward that person would be such that it would be a fragrant odor in your nostrils among those who are perishing, but among those who are being saved. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. His dying words, Lord, don't hold this against them. What? As they're killing him, Lord, don't, you know, forgive him as you've forgiven me. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. What if um, Stephen had said, you'll get yours, Saul. What, what if he had refused to look up to heaven? What if he had said, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. I don't, I don't deserve this. And we don't know what if, but we do know what happened because as a result of Stephen's willingness to, to remember God's love, to destroy ungodly, soul-destroying thinking, to exercise godly conduct, to consider the lost, and to remember God's glory that the Lord used him to save Paul the Apostle. Has Paul affected you? Has Paul had any influence on your life? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, immeasurable influence on your life. Who's the next Paul? Perhaps it's that coworker, it's neighbor, it's you know, someone that you despise because of his or her conduct. Can you say about that person, Lord, don't hold this against him. Father, we rejoice because you've not held our sins against us. You've, you've placed them on your son. He embraced them. He took them on. The Bible even says that he became them. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we ask that in the day of visitation, you will have used us, that we will have abstained from fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls, that we will keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander us as evildoers, they may because of our good deeds as they observe them, glorify you in the day of visitation. We ask now that you'd work this out in us as we sing to you, that we'd think practically about the theology we sing, that we would see it not as that which should pep us up or produce in us some kind of emotional get up and go, but that which would remind us of your greatness and your love and your mercy extended to us, that we would be willing, even as you have called us in Colossians 3, O oh, beloved, holy and chosen, put on a heart of compassion. Lord, that we would have hearts of compassion because you have had a heart of compassion. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.